read a wonderful story about a pastor and his wife this week who gathered their three little girls together, ages 6, 8, and 10, and they were talking to them about the season of Lent, trying to explain to them a little bit about, you know, what it is and, and the role that it plays in the life of the church and some of the traditions that are a part of the Lenten season. And they explained to their girls that, that some people choose to give something up in Lent, in, in remembering who Jesus is and what he gave up for us. That is sort of a symbolic expression of thankfulness, gratitude to Jesus. And so they're explaining this to the little girls and, and told them, now, we've decided that we are going to give up desserts in Lent. That is just something that Mom and I have decided to do. And uh, we're thinking that perhaps you, as a part of the family, would like to consider what it is that, that you might be able to give up as well to remember Jesus in this season. So the little girls thought about it for a minute, and the oldest one said, she said, yeah, I think I would like to give up sweets too. I'm, I'm going to give up sweets as well. Good. Middle one, of course, chimed right in and said, yeah, yeah, me too. I'm going to give up sweets. But the little one, the, the six-year-old, she was a little more contemplative, and she's thinking for a bit, and, and they thought, she, well, she's really mulling over the things that, you know, that she appreciates and wants to give up. She finally announced to the family, she said, I've decided that I would like to give up consequences for Lent. <laughs> Isn't that great? I would like to give up consequences. Wouldn't we all, darling? Wouldn't we all? Not exactly the, uh, the intent, I don't think, the historic intent behind giving up something, but uh, one that we would certainly be in favor of. We've been journeying together through this Lenten season. And our focus has not been so much on giving something up, although that is certainly a, an appropriate response that I know many of you have chosen to do, but it's been more of looking at Christ on the cross, a focus on who he was, what he gave up for us, and as we've said early on, kind of going against the tradition of Lent and the idea of not focusing on the cross on Sundays, because the Sundays in Lent are days of resurrection and celebration. Every Sunday should be the celebration of the resurrection for God's people. But our intention in doing that, sort of going against the, the trend just for this Lenten season, is to focus again on what Jesus has done for us as the people of God so that we arrive at the celebration of Resurrection Sunday um, really ready to party. Because that is what the Resurrection Sunday is about. April 8th, we are going to party like the redeemed. People who have been uh, given new life and granted a great gift. So hopefully we will arrive on that day with a better understanding of what Christ has done for us and, uh, and some appropriate responses uh, to his great sacrifice. So... First three words or statements that we've heard from Jesus, that has been our focus in this Lenten season, is to focus on what the church has traditionally called the, the final words, the final seven words of Jesus. They're, they're, they're statements. And um, the first three that we've looked at, quick review, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Remember that? Sound familiar? Yes, yes, we have heard that together. Uh, do you remember, what did we learn? 
What was the application there? What was our takeaway? Anybody brave enough to just shout it out? What was our takeaway? As Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. How does that apply to us as His followers? We have to forgive. There's nothing that we can't forgive. Whoa! Hard as that is! And it is a great struggle, depending on the, the depth of the pain and the wound that has been inflicted, inflicted upon us. And yet, we took away from that that Jesus calls His people to forgive because He ultimately forgave. Um, great injustice, great sin against Him. Second words that we heard Jesus say to the criminal who was hanging on a cross next to Him, today you will be with me in paradise. Anybody remember our takeaway from that? What was in that for us as we heard those words? As followers of Jesus, what's the promise there? Today, yes, we'll be with Jesus. We've said, don't forget. What makes paradise paradise is Jesus. Okay? And as soon as we breathe our last, we're there. We're with Jesus. And yes, He is with us every moment of every day in this life. But folks, to be with Him there is like nothing that we have ever experienced. So don't forget that. Paradise is about Jesus. As exciting as all those wonderful things are that we imagine heaven to be, it's paradise because Jesus is there. Okay? Last Sunday, Jesus saw His mother, one of the disciples, standing near the, the cross, Woman, here is your son. He said to his mom, to the disciple, here is your mother. Anybody remember? What did, what did we learn? What was the takeaway from that? Caring? Caring for one another. Jesus, as the oldest son, was, was looking out for the welfare of his mother. Even as he hung there dying on the cross, the responsibility of the oldest son in that culture, particularly since it... It would seem from the biblical evidence that Joseph is gone, perhaps died some years before. Jesus, concerned for the care of his mother, and yet we suggested that there's a mandate there that we care for one another in his absence. So this morning we're going to read the fourth words. We're going to read from Matthew's account of the crucifixion and, uh, and hear these fourth words from Jesus. So let's stand together, shall we? And read them together. Here we go. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the Son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, 
darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Familiar words, I'm sure, as as all of these are for us in this series during this season. You know, Jesus, in three of the last seven statements that He makes from the cross, addresses His Father. This is one of them. He addresses His Father in these words, but He does not use the word Father. How did he address his father? What did you hear? My God. My God. Dressing his father as my God. Something we've not seen before. I want you to turn to a neighbor and ask him, what do you think? Why didn't Jesus address his father in the usual address of father that he would always talk about? Why in this instance... Is it my God, my God? Go ahead. Ask your neighbor. See what they think. Okay. A lot of conversation going on here. Great insights. What do you think? I mean, it, admittedly, it's, it's, it's speculation. But it's, it's within a context. One that, uh, that we're familiar with. One that we understand. What, what do you think? What uh, did you and your neighbor talk about? Go ahead. Someone? Yes. Oh, that's interesting. Ah, okay. Okay, okay. Maybe Jesus avoiding uh, special favor and uh, a willingness to, to endure. Good, good. I like that. Good thought. Silence. Mm-hmm. 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 
Okay. Okay, okay. An acknowledgement of God as God, despite the horrible uh, circumstances that, that he was immediately in. Yes, great. Okay. In his humanness, for those, those few moments, just uh, unbelief. Of, of being separated, being let go of by the Father. Roger. He's a little upset. <laughs> this was a difficult circumstance that he was in. And as we've said before, we dare not minimize the humanity of Jesus. And, yeah. That was a tough situation. Karen? <clears throat> wow. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Doug? as he represented that sacrifice. Good, good stuff. Good stuff. There's a, yeah, Doug, go ahead. <clears throat> yes. <laughs> Says something about Jesus being steeped in the scriptures and the scripture fueling a response of his life circumstance. Excellent. Quoting Psalm 22. Um, Rick, would you read that text from Isaiah? A couple of familiar passages that, that I want us to hear that uh, really speak to the events of what's going on right now in the life of Jesus. From Isaiah 53, written probably six, seven hundred years before uh, by the old prophet. Go ahead. Probably a good number of us have heard those words before. But those descriptions that Isaiah gives to what he refers to as the suffering servant, years to come, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. The Lord laid on Him the iniquity, the sin of us all. The sin of us all laid on Him. We need to, we need to hear those descriptions fresh, realizing that what is happening to Jesus as He's dying on the cross is that. The sins of all people are being put 
on him. I've asked Heather if she would read from 2 Corinthians. Heather, another uh, familiar text, I'm sure, for many of us. But, but listen to what the Apostle Paul says here as he's encouraging the, the believers in Corinth to be ambassadors for Christ because of what God has done for us. Listen. Wow. There's probably no greater rescue text in all of Scripture. And Paul is saying, folks, we have been given an unbelievable ticket out of our sinfulness and the penalty that we deserve. Live like that is true. God makes it possible, my friends, for us to to be new people, to live our lives reoriented to the truth and to what will actually bring us life. And all of that was made possible by the Father putting our sins on His Son. He paid the penalty for our sin nature so that we would become His children clothed in righteousness. The perfect sinless one was punished for the sake of all those who have sin. And that happens to be everyone. Everyone who lives on planet Earth has sin. Some of you have maybe heard the name Alexander White. He was a 19th century Scottish Presbyterian preacher. He's uh, reported to have been a very humble man and he had a, a, an extremely strong sense of, of the, the evil that lied within him, that, that resided in the depths of his soul. His biographer says that he served a congregation for, for nearly 40 years and uh, knew his people well, and they knew him well and loved him. One day a woman came up to him after a service and said, Dr. White, I just love being in your presence. She said, you are so saintly. The story goes that he looked at her quietly for a moment and then said very seriously, Madam, if you could see what is in my soul, what you would see would make you spit in my face. That sense of, wow, the sinful nature that lies within me, that is never really dead and gone, that nature that rebels against God. You remember from our lessons in Colossians 1, we were created by Him and for Him, and yet evil entered the world and it brought sin to life. And sin finds a home in every human heart. And what that sin does is it causes us to want to be in charge. It wants us to make life about us. Make life about me. The lie of the enemy has found a place in the human heart. Seeking to convince us that we are better off on our own. That is the sin of of rebellion against our Creator. That's, that's what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1. 
It's this sin of rebellion. The sin nature that controls us. I want to suggest to you that, that Jesus died for on the cross that day. You know, we sometimes think that Jesus died for all of the sinful things that people do. I'm not saying that that is wrong. Biblically, I just don't know if it's, if it's going deep enough. I think we need to understand that Christ died for the penalty of the sin nature that lies within us that is naturally in rebellion against God, wanting to live life for ourselves instead of for Him, for whom we were created to live life for. And, and consequently, what can happen, I think, is that we assign sin to categories. When we start thinking in terms of Jesus dying for our sins, small s, we put them into, I think, essentially three categories. First category is, it's not that bad. The second category is, it's bad. The third category is, it's really bad. Those are the three categories of sins that we tend to categorize, put, uh, put our, our actions, our thoughts into. Now, most of my sins fall into that first category. They're not that bad. Sometimes, rarely I admit, <clears throat> one or two here and there will fall into the second category, yeah, and, and they're bad. But I don't feel that badly about the fact that they're bad because they're not as bad as yours because your sins all fall into the third category. <clears throat> you see, third category sins always apply to someone else, never to me. You see where this kind of thinking takes us? If I'm always evaluating the severity of my sins based upon the sins of others, sort of a comparison, then my sins will never be that bad because there are always others who do worse things than me. Trust me, I'm looking for them. Okay? In the wake of the, uh, the sexual abuse scandal at Penn State, New York Times writer David Brooks comments on our tendency to ignore our own sin as we notice the sin of others. For instance, he notes that many commentators have contemptuously asked, how could they have let that happen? Those Penn State officials should have known better. We assume that we would have done better than they did. But Brooks notes that the historical record shows how often ordinary people don't get involved in tragic or unjust situations. For example, the Holocaust, the Rwandan genocide, street beatings in America are some examples that he throws out. It happens so often that psychologists have a term for it. It's called the bystander effect. Brooks writes, in centuries past, people built moral systems that acknowledged this weakness. These systems emphasized our sinfulness. They reminded people of, of the evil within themselves. And unfortunately, according to Brooks, today, we live in a society oriented around our inner wonderfulness. So when something terrible happens, we always try to blame it on someone else. Brooks warns that it's easy to vilify others from the island of our own innocence. It's easy to ask, how could they have let this happen? But he says the proper question is how can we ourselves overcome our natural tendency to evade and self-deceive? It's a question this society has a hard time asking because the most seductive evasion is the one that leads us to deny the underside of our own nature. That's what Jesus died for on the cross. The underside, Brooks words, the underside of our own nature, the sin nature that continually 
encourages and applauds and cheerleads me into sitting on the throne of my life. Living life the way that I want to live. And that's the reason. As we've seen before in Romans 1, Paul says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all humanity. God as judge is weighing the motive of human hearts and finding that there is no love for Him in those hearts. And as Jesus is dying on the cross, I want to suggest to you, when we hear those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think they're the cry of a son who has only ever experienced intimacy with his father. And for the first time in all of eternity, and for the last time in all of eternity, between them, there is a brokenness because the sin of humanity has been placed upon the Son. For the first time, the Son experiences the Father as judge. And He faces a fierce holiness against Himself that demands death as penalty. The writer of Hebrews says that it is a frightening thing to fall into the hands of of a living God. Our God is a consumed fire. Jesus is knowing that like no other. Chuck Swindoll says this explains Jesus' expression of forsakenness. He states that the fellowship between God the Father and God the Son was broken, leaving Jesus alienated and abandoned, forsaken, dying alone on the cross. The crushing weight of humanity's sin was born alone by Christ, separated from the Father. It's a mystery. Powerful mystery. God-man dying on the cross, separated from the Father. Martin Luther's comment was, God forsaking God, who can understand it? Now you may have noticed this morning that we, we left out the Aramaic phrase that, that both Matthew and Mark include in their text. Melanie, can we put that up? <clears throat> these words that none of us know how to pronounce, so we didn't try to pronounce them. But uh, Matthew tells us that it was, it was about three in the afternoon when, when Jesus cried out these words and then gives us the translation, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What do you think? Why do you think these words are recorded? Why the Aramaic phrase that Matthew then translates? Ever wonder that? You know, in, in the first century, it's typically believed by, by historians that, that the Jews in Judea primarily spoke Aramaic. Greek, of course, was also spoken, but it was it's kind of the trade language of the Roman Empire. Latin seems to, by that time, have become more the language of the Roman army. And, and some of the archaeology that we find today gives evidence that, that Hebrew was, was rapidly disappearing at that point. Jesus was probably trilingual. But very likely, the language that he grew up with was Aramaic. Aramaic was his 
first language. It was the one that he probably spoke most of the time, certainly with his family, with his friends, those in the synagogue. We could call it his heart language. If you're familiar with the work of of New Tribes, Wycliffe Bible Translators, they're very concerned about learning the heart language. Our friends, the McLeans, Kathleen's kids, Adam and Julie, they, they all speak the trade language of the country in which they live. But they work so hard for years and years and years to learn what is called the heart language of the people group so that they can communicate the gospel into their lives. So that there's, there's no doubt about the message of the truth concerning Jesus. That nothing gets lost in a language that is, that is not the first language of those who are hearing it. The heart language is the language that people think in, that people dream in, that people don't even have to think about when they hear someone speak in. Aramaic. Jesus cried out in Aramaic, Matthew tells us, in a loud voice, in his heart language. The agony of separation from the Father was like nothing that he had ever known. Speculation, but I'm suspicious that the Spirit of God has preserved the Aramaic through the centuries in all translations for God's people so that we will not forget what happened on that cross. So that we will be impressed again and again and again every time we read and hear those words will be impressed with the severity of Jesus' darkest moment in His life. Darkest moment of pain and despair. Cried out in His heart language. So, all this being true, what is it that we take away here as followers of Christ? We thought we'd never get there, right? Simply put, Very simply put. We ought to take sin very, very seriously. No categories of sin. My friends, sin is sin. And sin originates from nature that is still within us, that prompts us to make life about us and not about the one who gave himself for us. It was my sin, my sin nature, it was your sin nature that was was placed upon Jesus as he hung on that cross and it was so serious that the intimacy of the Trinity was broken as the Father pronounced our judgment upon His Son. Judgment of guilty. I read an article this week titled, Is it okay for the believer to sin? 
my initial response was, that is such a stupid question. And then I read the article. I liked the guy better after I read the article. I thought, no. The answer is no. The answer is always no. It's never okay for a believer to sin. Never. When God forgave us for the rebellious, sinful nature that lies within each one of us, He also placed His Spirit within us, empowering and guiding us to live lives that are free from the actions of sin. He gave us the ability, through His Spirit living in us, to recognize when the old sin nature is raising its ugly head and telling us, calling us, begging us, pleading with us to make life about us. We have the ability to say, no. 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 Do we still sin? Unfortunately, yes. But I think, I think the more important question is, not is it okay for the believer to sin, Because the answer to that one is no, it's never okay for the believer to sin. I think the really important question is how do we respond when we sin? How do we respond when we give in to the temptation of the sin nature? Those who have been forgiven by God, those who have been given new life through the death of His Son and set free from the bondage of the sin nature, seems to me that when those folks sin, they will hear in their their mind that agonizing cry of Jesus as He paid the price to provide them freedom from sin. And when they hear that agonizing cry, they will do the only appropriate response, and that is they will hate their sin. They will hate it. Because at that moment they understand a fundamental truth. It's not somebody else's sin that he's dying for. It's mine. As you hear the agony of Jesus on the cross paying the price for you to be free from the bondage of sin let me ask you do you take sin seriously? Do I take sin seriously? Or are we rather casual about it? God never winks at sin. Nor should we. Hatred of sin is always right. Complacency towards sin is never right. We're going to close this morning with two prayers as the praise team comes up and prepares to, to lead us in our response this morning. Allow me to, <clears throat> to read this first prayer. It is a satirical revision of a traditional public confession that has been used for years and years and years in the Book of Common Prayer. Tragically, I think it reflects an attitude towards sin that is prevalent in far too many 
that call themselves followers of Jesus. Benevolent and easygoing parent, we have occasionally had some minor errors of judgment. But they're not really our fault. Due to forces beyond our control, we have sometimes failed to act in accordance with our own best interests. Under the circumstances, we did the best we could. We are glad to say that we're doing okay, perhaps even slightly above average. Be your own sweet self with those who know they are not perfect. Grant us that we may continue to live a harmless and and happy life and keep our self-respect. And we ask all these things according to the unlimited tolerances which we have a right to expect from you. Amen. I want to invite you to stand and let's compare that with this prayer titled, Yet I Sin, written, as you might guess, from one of the old Puritans. Thou art good beyond all thought, but I am vile, wretched, miserable, blind. My lips are ready to confess, but my heart is slow to feel, and my ways reluctant to amend. I bring my soul to Thee, break it, wound it, bend it, mold it. Grant me to know that the way of transgressors is hard, that evil paths are wretched paths, that to depart from Thee is to lose all good. Thy loving Spirit strives within me, brings me Scripture warnings, speaks in startling providences, allures by secret whispers. Yet I choose devices and desires to my own hurt, impiously risen, grieve and provoke Him to abandon me. All these things I mourn, lament, and cry for them. Work in me more profound and abiding repentance. Give me the fullness of a godly grief that trembles and fears, yet ever trusts and loves, which is ever powerful and ever confident. Grant that through the tears of repentance I may see more clearly the brightness and glories of the saving cross.